Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to 1 John. Today we step into the epistle of 1 John, and every series is important because the whole of the revealed scripture is important, but 1 John is a somewhat unique epistle, uh, one which is often misunderstood, one which is difficult in some ways to understand, or maybe more so difficult to explain, one which, when understood property, properly, excuse me, has the potential to fundamentally establish a foundational perspective for your Christian life in a way that I would say no other book of the Bible truly has simply by virtue of how it is that John describes these things. 1 John is the first of three epistles that bear the name of John. We have a 1 John, we have a 2 John, we have a 3 John. The epistle, uh, this epistle, the epistle of 1 John is... Uh, One of the more clear and obvious epistles as it relates to its author in that many of the very early church fathers quoted this book and directly attributed it to John. Now, John does not name himself in this epistle. However, it does seem to be quite uh, obvious as we look both in history and in the content of his writing. Now, when I say John here, we are careful to distinguish because there are two great Johns in the New Testament. And they are two very different Johns. The first great John was and is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist uh, called that not because of any sort of denominational affiliation, right? Uh, John was not the first Baptist in the the denominational sense, uh, as much as we would love to claim him. And as a manner of the legacy of truth and the faith of our fathers, perhaps we would claim him still, uh, but he's not the first Baptist in the denominational idea. He was John the baptizer, and that is because the distinctive of his ministry was that his was a ministry of Baptism. Now, that is where we get the Baptist idea, the, uh, starting with the idea of Anabaptism uh, in Europe and then coming over into the Baptist idea in our denomination. The fact that we recognize baptism after salvation, which was something that particularly uh, in that Puritan time when uh, there was the reformers giving way to um, what would be called going from the old light Calvinist to the new light Calvinist and then into uh, what would effectively be um, the Baptist doctrines, through Roger Williams and such, uh, we, we do see this distinctive of what, what was the Baptist church and now has become the distinctive of, of uh, many Baptistic in doctrine, which is that they believed in baptism after salvation rather than infant baptism, right? So uh, now once again, now John had nothing to do with any of that. Because John was not baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ, he was baptizing unto repentance, And so this is a whole different context for John as the Baptist and the baptizer. He was the divinely appointed forerunner to the person and work of Jesus Christ as Messiah. Now, this is not the John that authored any of the texts of the New Testament. John the Baptist was a prophet. He was what we would call a verbal prophet or a speaking prophet. He was not a writing prophet or uh, and and he was not the, the apostle who authored the text of Scripture. He proclaimed truth. And then fairly early on in Jesus' ministry, he was killed by Herod. The, the, the John that we speak of this evening is the second great John. The second John is introduced to us in Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 3. It is in the record of Jesus gathering his 12 disciples who would then become his 
effectively 11 apostles, right? Because Judas betrayed him and then killed himself. And the Mark passage is perhaps the most interesting of these two as it relates to John. In Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, we read this. And he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, or Boanerges, depending on English or Greek there. Boanerges would be the Greek, which is the sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him, and they went into an house. So we have these two brothers, right? The sons of Zebedee, named James and John. Now, Jesus had a bit of a habit of nicknaming his disciples. He nicknamed some of them, as we see here. The most well-known of these is Simon, who he surnamed Peter, and he would be Peter, and then he would actually change his Hebrew name from Simon to Cephas in order to align with the idea of Peter, which does mean rock or stone. But these sons of Zebedee also had a name. They were not named individually or surnamed individually. They were named as a pair, Boanerges, excuse me, which in the Greek means sons of thunder. Now, we do not know what it was about these brothers that gave them such an awesome nickname. Uh, That's pretty cool. But that was the name that Jesus gave them. Um, This is the John and this John, this John, one of the two sons of thunder, one of these two sons of Zebedee. Um, And maybe it was their father that was the thunder. I don't know. We don't know. Um, But this was the one who wrote the epistle that we consider today. This John was called by another name, not by Jesus, actually, but by himself. In the epistle of, or the gospel of John, so we, John wrote five books of our New Testament. He wrote the gospel of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, which were his epistles. And then he wrote the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And of those five books, we have the one gospel, the three epistles, and then the one that we call apocryphal literature or prophetic literature. But John never mentions himself in the gospel of John. He mentions the other disciples, but he will never actually name himself. Instead, he references himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He also never names himself in his three epistles. He does name himself in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why he called himself the disciple of Jesus, whom Jesus loved, um, one may say, wow, that, that sounds very arrogant of him, right? He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. But I don't think so. I think it was much to the opposite. I think it was John saying, I'm not worthy to be named among Christ's disciples except for this, that Christ has placed his love on me. And I think that's where John was going with the label that he took upon himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So this brings us to our final bit of housekeeping before we step into the text. I mentioned already that John, 1 John is one of five books written by this man. Uh, we distinguish them. We call John the Baptist, John the Baptist. And then we call this John typically John the Evangelist. And that is because he was the John that wrote the great evangelist book, which is the book of John. In the book of John, toward the end, he says, these things are written that ye may believe on the name of the 
only begotten Son of God. In, t- in fact, John is the evangelistic gospel. It is the gospel that if you truly want to lead someone through the nature of belief and unbelief, of darkness and of light, believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, John is the book to go to. It is the authoritative record, not necessarily of everything that happened in Jesus's life. That would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it is the authoritative record of Jesus's life and teachings as it relates to this idea of being saved and walking and following Jesus Christ as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so John is called John the Evangelist, writing these three epistles then, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the prophetic book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. We know that The Revelation of Jesus Christ was written toward the end of John's life while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. We know nothing else of the timing as it relates to his epistles. They don't give us really any hints. What we know is this. This epistle is written to a group of believers. It is written for the purpose of exhorting them unto fullness of joy through maintaining fellowship with Christ by abiding in him through obedience to his commands. And that's what we're going to find as we walk through the book, that he is going to tell us how it is that we can walk in fullness of joy. It is not warning you that you might lose your salvation, as many people will claim of the book, and we'll talk through that as we go through it um, slowly over the next several months. It is not necessarily a book. It's not a book telling you how to be saved. Uh, John already wrote one of those. It's called the Gospel of John. This is a book to tell you how, having accepted Christ as your Savior, to then walk in a manner that brings fullness of joy and to walk in a manner that brings glory to God. And so that is its purpose. And let me say that again, that First John is exhorting Christians unto fullness of joy through maintaining fellowship with Christ by abiding in him through obedience unto his commandments. And we're going to see this come again and again. It was a very hard book to outline. There's outlines on the back shelf there. And the reason why it's a difficult book to outline is because it kind of almost seems circular or cyclical. It says something and then it kind of says it again and then it kind of says it again. There's several theories as to why different perspectives, uh, maybe going back to some Hebrew poetic ideas, Hebrew poetry, and, and there, there, there are several perspectives or thoughts as to why, and thus uh, different manner of, of outlines as it relates to how it is to outline the book. All of my outlines are original. Uh, it's kind of how I've, I've uh, seen the book, so it might be right, it might be wrong, uh, but it's definitely me. And as we always do, so too we will do today, beginning with this book sermon a survey of the entire book, a summation of the whole, considering the nature of the forest so that we, by God's grace, don't lose focus on the forest when we start looking very carefully at all the trees, right? And the book begins with something that is very John-esque. If you recall how uh, John 1 begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was beginning it was in the beginning with God. And so we have this idea of the word going back to the beginning. And then as we step into 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, we begin this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. And as we consider this, it's almost... It's very, very similar, is it not, to how John began his gospel. Almost thus, we could consider it a continuation, or in, in a better way, we might understand the, the gospel of first, or the epistle of first John to kind of be an explanation of sorts. And an explanation, not of all of the gospel of John, but of a, of a subset 
of the Gospel of John, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. So the Gospel of John is obviously intended to introduce the inquirer to the concept of God himself. It gives a baseline understanding of the connection between the eternal God of creation and then the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then jumping to verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see this connection between the reality of God, the existence of God from the beginning, and the existence of this one who is the Word from the beginning, who is God. And then we see that that Word, who is God, who was from the beginning, took on flesh and dwelt among us, and in Him was the fullest expression of the glory of the Father, so that when Jesus said in the Gospels, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, it is absolutely true. Now, the first epistle of John assumes not only this understanding, it connects us to that understanding, that which was from the beginning. Well, if we know what John wrote in John chapter 1, we know that which is from the beginning. And then John says, and we have heard it, and we have seen it with our eyes, and we have looked upon it, and our hands have handled it, and that is this word of life, because the word became flesh and dwelt among them. We'll talk more about that, of course, next week as we dig into the content of chapter 1, verse 1. The first epistle of John testifies that they have seen this word of life. They bear witness to him not only in the function of salvation, but in a different and essential function. And John writes about this different and essential function in verses 3 and 4. He says, That which we have seen and, have declare, uh, and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Why is John writing? What is John writing about? And the reason why these statements are so important is because, as I mentioned already, 1 John is a perpetually misunderstood book. It is often taken by those who have not learned to study in context, and please don't take that as an attack. It's not an attack. It's not meant to be an attack on anyone. It's simply the case that the process of evaluating statements and even actions as a subset of a much broader whole, the idea of taking somebody's individual actions and statements and couching them in a broader context is difficult for humans to do. Read the news, you find it's actually quite difficult for people to say, oh, that statement is not given in, in a vacuum. It actually has you know, statements that came before it. And, and there's even a whole track record of how this person has talked or lived that might give us insight into what he meant when he said what he said. And that is very important in 1 John. Not just going back to the beginning of 1 John, though that's enough for us to gain context, but even stepping into the gospel of John itself. So when an author states the intended effect of his writing, we can certainly debate whether or not he achieved that effect. When I get up and I say, my, my goal this evening is to help you understand the broad perspective on 1 John. Now, you could certainly... Decide for yourself whether or not by the end of, of our time together, I have accomplished that goal. Well, Pastor Wickler did not help me understand the broader context of 1 John. But what you can't say is Pastor Wickler was telling us about Ephesians. You can't do that. 
Because whether or not you learned more about Ephesians than 1 John from my, our time together this evening, my intended purpose was stated, which is I'm trying to give you insight into 1 John. So you can't say I'm not giving you insight into 1 John. John has given us his purpose here. And of course, we are confident that he's going to accomplish his purpose at least to the divine standard because this is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, right? Now, whether or not we actually figure that out for ourselves, that's our problem, not, not God's problem, right? The whole, he has given us the Spirit of God, and then we take that, and we, we study, and we learn, and we do our due diligence to learn from his word. But what we can't do is say, this is what John has said this book is about, and we're going to say the book is about something other than what John has said it is about. We can't do that because John has given us his purpose. What is his purpose? That we may have fellowship with them, and their fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus Christ. In other words, that there may be a unity in the church among fellowship with Christ. And through this, that your joy may be full. And this is two of three primary statements of intent that are given in this book. Right here in verses three and four. John is writing these words that those who are reading may have fellowship with us, effectively spirit-filled believers, as proximity with the fellowship that they all have as spirit-filled believers with the Father and the Son. Notice there then, spirit-filled believers in fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, fellowship with the whole of the Trinity. And then the second statement of intent, that your joy may be full. And we will see as we continue that these statements of intent are not actually different intentions, nor will his third, and depending on if we want to call it his fourth, his fourth statement of intent. They are all, in fact, the same. They are all products of the same idea, which is that fourth statement of intent, that you know that you have eternal life. Not that you know how to have eternal life, but that you know you have it. Confidence, fellowship, abiding, through obedience. And so here we have this intent. Fullness of joy that comes from fellowship with God and with his people. And then in chapter 3, we'll find that this fellowship leads us to the fullness of joy rooted in sinning not. This epistle is not written to teach a person how to be saved from their sins. That's what the gospel of John is written to do. This epistle is written to teach a person how to live as one who is saved, to tap into the fullest potential of what Jesus Christ purchased for us on the cross, to live in fellowship and so thus to experience fullness of joy. And we'll talk about this over the next weeks, but this is not a concept of evangelism per se. Yes, when we evangelize, we proclaim the promise of fullness of joy. But fullness of joy is not a direct and exclusive result of getting saved. Being saved from your sin opens up to you the possibility of fullness of joy. Being saved from your sin opens the realm of joy to you. But fullness of joy is realized only in a subset of believers in this world. Namely, those who are walking in fellowship with Christ. And you most certainly can be a believer walking outside of fellowship with Jesus Christ. 
And so what John wants to do is take us beyond just the idea of are you saved or are you not saved and bring us squarely into this idea of are you living out fellowship with Jesus Christ? And we'll see this connection between fellowship and fullness of joy because they are dependent upon each other. And when we get here, we will be spending much time in John 15. Because it's quite obvious, to me at least, I feel it's quite obvious, that what John is referencing throughout the book of 1 John is primarily what Jesus was teaching in John 12 through 17 as he was interacting intimately with his disciples and directing them toward the thoughts of what comes next. That time when Jesus was walking from the the upper room of the Passover to the Mount of Olives where he began his prayer. And we see this stretch of instruction. And it kind of centers around John 15. I am the vine, ye are the branches. And that picture of abiding. So then if John and 1 John are so connected, we would expect similar themes. And this is what we find. We've seen already the theme of life. The idea of that which we have handled, that which we have seen, that which we have touched of the word of life. And this gives way to the theme of light. And then that gives way to the theme of fellowship. And these concepts will interplay throughout the epistle. So verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanseth us from all sin. Walking in the light brings fellowship one with another because we're all fellowshipping with Christ, tapping us into the fullest potential of the cleansing work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That beyond just being saved, Christian, we need to walk in that salvation. And in doing so, we abide in Christ and we rest in fellowship and we receive the benefits thereof, namely this intent, fullness of joy. That can be an elusive concept, even for the Christian today. John's going to show us how to get there. And this leads us to our third statement of intent in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now in the context of which we will certainly explore in the weeks to come, John is not saying that we can, in this life, become sinless. You read the last three verses of chapter 1, and you'll find that John is saying, as a matter of fact, if you say that you are or can be sinless, the truth is not in you. But rather, that it is God's intent for us that we do not sin. And that God has made provision for this intention through his spirit by means of fellowship unto fullness of joy. And this brings us to our next line of thinking as it regards the epistle. That while John's intent was, as we have stated, to compel the believer not to sin by remaining in fellowship unto fullness of joy, it seems likely that John's purpose in writing was actually to combat false teaching. We're going to find several points in this epistle where John speaks about those who have gone out from them but are not of them that teach something different. He calls them antichrists. As a matter of fact, it's the only book in the Bible that uses that term antichrist. It's not in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Except to this idea, uh, except to the connection, right? 
that we see here, this idea of antichrists. And John is going to use this term to speak of a group of people that are teaching something utterly contrary to the person and work of Jesus Christ, but calling it doctrine. So it seems as though John's purpose is actually to contradict false teaching, that they're that, that these believers, the believers unto which he's writing here, had begun to fall under the influence of some manner of false teachers. As I said, John will later call them antichrists, bearing a spirit which is not of God. Thus, John will compel them to try the spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And these false teachers were confusing things. Again, we're going to make some inferences here, but it seems as though they were confusing the relationship between believers and sin, confusing the relationship between Jesus and God, confusing the duties of believers one to another, because these are the things that Jesus speaks of. Jesus speaks of the relationship, excuse me, that, that, that John speaks of. John speaks of the relationship between Jesus and God, that Jesus is God. Very important. He that denieth that Jesus is come in the flesh is not of God. And so we see this idea, very important. John's going to emphasize it. John is also going to emphasize this idea that you, that you have sin, but you should sin not. Well, that's still a, quite a debate in Christian circles today, isn't it? What is the Christian's relationship to sin? Do Christians still sin? And should, can, if, if Christians do still sin, then can they still sin, right? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? What is the relationship? What is the balance? How do we walk that line? There were some false teachers in John's day that they were saying some things. And John needed to correct the record. And he's going to do so. And then finally, this idea of the duty of believers one to another. And I think what we're going to find there is John is very, very strong in his expression of the fact that those who are in Christ love the brethren. And if I were to guess... I would imagine that those false teachers who had gone out from them but were not of them, who had started something different and were luring them told it, were extremely abrasive toward other believers. And that John is using that as a evidence that these men are not of God. Why? Because they do not love the brethren. And so this is why I believe that 1 John is actually a book that is counteracting some false doctrine. That's his purpose, though not his intent. His intent is fullness of joy through fellowship by abiding in obedience. That is what John intends to, intends to teach. But for this reason, that we would be grounded in solid doctrine, sound doctrine, and not be driven by the winds of false doctrine by these antichrists, these false teachers. Thus leading these believers out of joy, and into frustration, division, and confusion. That's what false teachers do. To that end, we'll have to grapple with these issues throughout the weeks as well. Lay out the clarity of scriptures intended to protect us from false teachers and false systems of worship. Now, one of the blessed side effects of John teaching so clearly about the nature of fellowship is that in it, he lays out the positive evidences of belief in the life of a Christian. And through this book... It becomes extremely helpful 
at laying out the clear and obvious evidences of saving faith in a person's life. And you all know that when I talk about confidence and salvation, how can I know that I'm saved? I lean very heavily upon 1 John for that. As a matter of fact, all but I think one of the proofs is rooted, maybe two, are rooted in 1 John. Why is that? Because, well, that is one of the blessed side effects of John's intent. If John's intent is that we can know that we have eternal life, that we can walk in fellowship with him, and that our joy can be full, then he is going to show us those things that give us that confidence. And so we can draw from it that confidence and we can have evidences. Thank God that we do not just have to rely upon a date written on our Bible to know that we're saved. Thank God that I don't have to, relay, I don't have to rely upon a memory to, remember, to, to know whether or not I'm saved. It was a year ago today that my heart went into VFib and I collapsed. I don't remember that. For all I know, somebody bonked me on the head and took me to the hospital and made up a story because I don't remember any of it. I... It, it happened Saturday a year ago, and I didn't wake up and start having memories until Wednesday of the next week. What happened during those five days? I don't know. My wife tells me something. My children tell me something. My parents tell me something, but I don't know. Like, for all I know, none of it actually happened because I don't have a memory of any of it. Thank God I don't have to rely upon my memory to know whether I'm saved remembering the moment, remembering the time, remembering how I felt. And thank God I don't have to rely upon a feeling. Boy, how frustrating would that be if I had to rely only upon whether or not I feel saved today? No, there are objective evidences that I can lean on whether or not I am born again. And I can rest on those and I can look for those and I can see those in my life and I can walk away with confidence. And 1 John is going to help us greatly with that blessed side effect of John's intent and John's purpose. And John presents actually the first one of those in 1 John 2, verse 3. Hereby we do know that we know him. Not hereby we know him, and if you don't do this, you don't know him. It's hereby we know that we know him. Right? This is our confidence. If we keep his commandments. Now we'll walk through the ins and outs of what this means when we get there in a few in few weeks, a few months, we'll see, who knows. But as we walk in the light, we rest in fellowship with our Savior, we keep His commandments. And He'll go on to say it another time, and His commandments are not grievous. We'll talk about that one too. This gives us confidence that we are in Him. Confidence that leads us into fullness of joy of which John has already spoken. And there will indeed be quite a bit to talk about here because we have to sort out what John is saying is John saying that we're not saved if we don't keep his commandments? Well, no, you can infer that into it, but John's not saying that. Don't put words in his mouth. Pen, whatever. And as we continue, is John saying that we aren't saved if we don't love the brethren? Well, no, that's not what John says. John says this is how we have confidence. We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. We know that we are in him as we love the brethren. These are things that redound unto our confidence. These are evidences, not negative evidences, positive evidences. And so John's message is not about who is and who is not saved per se. John already answered that question. Jesus answered it for us in John 3.18. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus settled it there and then. The point of 1 John is not to litigate your faith. 
but rather to contemplate the natural outworkings of faith so that you can see those evidences in your life. And as you see the evidences in your life, you will know those evidences to be there because you are walking in fellowship. You walk in fellowship. You abide in Christ. You bear the fruit of the Spirit. You show the evidences of a believing life. You see those evidences in your life. You say, I am in Christ. And that brings fullness of joy, which is why John wrote this book. So the point of 1 John, not to litigate a person's faith. So that if we, as we think through this book, we contemplate the natural outworkings of faith and settle what it is that a believer is expected to look like. And then we ask the question, if I don't look this way, if this is what a believer is supposed to look like, I keep God's commandments, I love the brethren, and I'm not that way, the question is why? Well, the first question is, have I believed? Right? That's question number one. And then, yes, if I have believed, then the second question is, what is wrong in my life, my spiritual life, that I am not seeing what the Bible says I'm supposed to see when I'm in Christ? And if we can get that solved, then you have broken down the barrier between your heart and fullness of joy. And that's why John wrote, that you may have fullness of joy. To this end, John tells his readers the same thing that Jesus told his followers. He says in 1 John 2, 7, that he wrote no new commandment, but the same old commandment, namely, love thy neighbor as thyself. But then he says in verse 8, just as Jesus did in his ministry, that there's something very new about this commandment, though it's an old commandment, namely that the true light is now shining, enabling them to realize it in a way that they'd never possibly known it before. And this is what John wants the reader of 1 John to carry away. A deep-rooted determination to live up to all of the potential that was purchased for them on the cross and given to them at the moment of belief. But the Christian life is an effort It's an effort of positive determination unto divine transformation. Let me say that again because that's a lot of shuns. The Christian life is an effort of positive determination, moving forward determined, unto divine transformation, that the Lord will change you. It is God that works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, the scriptures tell us. But it begins with a positive faith in that finished work. It is the interplay between my will, submitting my will, and the working of the Spirit of God. And when that interplay is done the way God has designed it to be done, the outworking is keeping God's commandments, loving the brethren, fullness of joy. And the reason why we need to talk about this is because you and I are bombarded not just with the paganism of the world all around us. We'll get there. John will say, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, right? We'll get there. That's in 1 John. But we are also bombarded with the world, not just as paganism, but the world as religion, with false claims abounding. False Christs, other Christs, the name of Christ, but not Christ who Christ is, what his work on the cross accomplished. There's a whole lot of false ways and there's one true way. And we need to know these things because we want to know the one true way. 
So that Paul warns at the end of chapter 2 that we have heard that antichrists will come, and this is true. John himself will write about that in the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? That antichrists will come. But he says, even now there are many antichrists, of which I've already spoken. Men who have gone out of the church, but were not of the church. Men who claim to represent Christ, but who have not continued in the truth. And the great question that must be asked then is, how do we know the difference? 2 Peter 2 describes these men. Jude describes these men. And as 2 Peter 2 and Jude describe them, these are men who have tasted of the heavenly gift, not meaning that they're saved, but that they do know the illumination and the enlightenment that comes with recognizing that Jesus Christ is who he is and did what he did. But those false teachers, much to the contrary of those who are believers, those false teachers were illuminated to that gift and they said, no. And not only did they say no, but then they said, and I can monetize this because I know how to look and to sound like one of these people. And so I can fleece that flock. We'll spend a lot of time there when we get there. How do we know the difference then? If these people sound like us and look like us and they even came out from us, but they are not of us. Well, John's answer is you have this thing called the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God is our great teacher, an unction or an anointing, the scriptures tell us, from the Holy One who teaches us all things in accordance with the truths of God's word. God, you can discern between the spirits because you have the Spirit of God inside of you. So then we're going to get to learn how to tap into the teaching of the Spirit of God. And what we're going to find is that we're going to tap into that through fellowship. Fellowship one with another and fellowship with Christ, abiding in Christ. Fellowship is not just the key to fullness of joy. Fellowship is the key to defending your spirit against Antichrist, against the, the spirit of Antichrist, the false spirits that have gone out into this world. To this end, we are called in chapter 3 to abide in Christ by rejecting Sin. And once again, this likely drives to the heart of whatever the false teaching was that they were hearing at that time. We don't know what it was. There are speculations as to what the false teaching may have been that would have precipitated this. We can go through all of the cults, through all of history, and see several of the cults, both modern and ancient, that align with this idea. But we don't know. But likely these antichrists who had come out of the church were teaching that men did not need to live a righteous life in order to be right with God. So that John proclaims in 1 John 3, verse 7, let no man deceive you, he that doeth righteousness is righteous. John has, in the book, walked an important line, proclaiming without confusion or contradiction that every man is a sinner, but when we abide in Christ, we can live in righteousness. And we'll be spending some time there, probably going to Paul in Romans to, to round out that idea. And since we can live in righteousness, though we're not always going to live in righteousness because we're sinners, but because we can, God does expect us to. And when we don't, God has made provision for our forgiveness through confession and restoration. Very important. First John 1, 9, we'll talk about it. And only through confession and then righteousness can we abide in Christ. 
And only through abiding in Christ can we live righteous lives. And only through abiding in Christ can we be led of the Holy Spirit into all truth. And only through abiding in Christ can we experience fullness of joy. So that all comes down to this, abide in Christ. Then as John continues, he focuses in on a very specific specific element of biblical obedience. It, It is the root of the tree, the great commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might, and... Love thy neighbor as thyself. And again, we would expect this to be derived from whatever the false teaching of the day was, likely some sort of deeply divisive teaching, right? Not only was this teaching an error as it relates to the nature of the believer and sin, we'll see in 1 John 4 that it is an error as it relates to the nature of Jesus Christ because there are spirits who do not, who are unwilling to proclaim that Jesus has come in the flesh. But then we also see that whatever this false teaching was, it was divisive. It compelled its followers to disdain or marginalize other believers and so divide the church of Christ. To this end, John makes it very clear that the man who, falls, uh, who fails excuse me, to love his brethren is abiding in death. Does that mean he's an unbeliever? That's not what John is saying. There's a big difference between being an unbeliever and abiding in death. Pastor, how do you know that? Well, we'll talk about it. But in Romans chapter 6, we see this great verse that we use. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's always fascinated me about that verse in Romans chapter 6 is that that's smack in the center of a section where Paul is writing to believers about how they're supposed to live. He already covered the whole you must be born again part in Romans chapters one through five. Romans chapter six says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? That's Romans chapter six. And then why is it then that in Romans chapter six, verse 23, he's saying the wages of sin is death. I thought we'd already covered that part. I thought we were already past that part. Well, no, because a a believer can also live in death, not eternal death, but in separation from the Lord by stepping outside of fellowship. And, and, and what, what is it that brings us outside of fellowship with the Lord? How is it that we too can live in death? Well, because death is the wage of sin. That when we abide in sin, we are abiding in separation. Not eternal separation, that's settled on the cross. But most certainly, a separation in fellowship with our Lord. And so we see this some measure of false teaching here. And so John makes it very clear that the man who fails to love his brother is abiding in death. And this is certainly not a good thing, right? Even if you disagree with me, even if you say, you know what, pastor, no, a believer cannot abide in death. This must be unbelievers. Even if you say that, and we'll we'll, we'll address that when we get there. Some of you may disagree with me. That's fine. I don't hold hold the, the corner of the market on truth. But even if you say that, whatever John is saying here, we know it's not a good thing, right? We know that we don't want to be there. So that the call to love the brethren is a preeminent call in the life of the believer. And one which is a clear and obvious manifestation of the working of the Spirit of God in the life of his own. Reflecting a clear manifestation of the Spirit of God working in him so that 1 John chapter 3, verse 24 says... He that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. 
We'll have to do a lot of pronoun antecedent reference there. And hereby we know that we abide, that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given to us. The spirit of God being the key to all of this. And John goes on to warn that false prophets and false spirits have gone out into the world. That's 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 and following. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Spirit of God is in the children of God. And if the Spirit of God is in the children of God, then if I am not grieving the Spirit, if I am not quenching the Spirit, if I am instead in fellowship with the Spirit of God, then I can expect that the Spirit of God will commend itself and commend the truth of God to my heart in a way that the, that the false teacher simply cannot touch. That the false spirit cannot touch. That the spirit of Antichrist cannot touch. Why? Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And as we submit to the spirit of God, we follow the word of God, we are protected from false teaching. So we anchor ourselves where? We anchor ourselves in the book. Learning and knowing the book. Because this is how we avoid being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the spirit of Antichrist, which is very much so in the world today. Whether or not the man of sin is alive or not is something that we will know sooner or later. But the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. And John is warning us against it. And as we submit ourselves to the spirit of God, our love is made perfect. As we love the brethren and so manifest to the world the power of the spirit of God. And love is indeed that final theme of the epistle. The end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 thus says this. This commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. If you love the one who who begat you, Christ, then you love those that are begotten of him, the believers. So that we explore the glorious interplay between obedience to God's commands, abiding in Christ, walking in the spirit, trying the spirits, whether they be of God, and we see the manifestation of that fellowship, fullness of joy, love for the brethren, Holy Spirit illumination. These are the things we're going to learn about. And in this, we are established in the Christian life We love and we serve one another. We testify to the world of the truth that we hold. And as we see all of this, the fullness of 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 comes to fruition. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. You can know. Was this a part of the false teaching too? The idea that you cannot know whether you're a believer, that you will die in in a measure of confusion, wondering, skepticism, hoping that you measured up, hoping you did enough because you didn't always live up to the ideals. Well, no, John says, I've written these things that ye may know. And so by God's grace, everyone who sits under this series at the end of it will know. And John has given all of this to us so that we will live this way. And as we live this way, as we live in this confidence, we thus become a living testimony, living proof of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world that is around us. 
And so then the final verses of the book are these. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. This is the point. We know that the Son of God has come. We have confidence in him. We don't, have to, we don't have to wonder. We know it. Through his spirit, he has given us understanding. We submit to his spirit and he teaches us all things. He commends this truth to us. And this is the true God and this is eternal life. And that's what we want, right? Life. That's how this began. The things that we have seen and tasted and heard and, and touched of the word of life. And what is life in Christ? It's fullness of joy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The connection to the true and living God. Not just the life that is to come, but the life that is today. And this is how we do it. Keep his commandments, confess known sin, walk in fellowship, submit to the spirit, be taught of him, love the brethren, keep his commandments, try the spirits, deny those false spirits. Don't give them any room in your heart or your mind. Experience fullness of joy. And John ends then with this pointed note of exhortation. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So over the course of the next several months, we will explore this short treasure trove of exhortations and of knowledge, leading us to be fitted unto fullness of joy, rooted in personal fellowship with Jesus Christ through eternal life. But let that final exhortation ring in your ears and in your heart as we step out of this book sermon today. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The truths which we will study in this book are the keys to, as it were, Christian fulfillment. But it is only for them that are willing to set aside those things which compete for Christ's attention and love in your life. If you're going to hang on to idols, an idol of self, an idol of some doctrinal proclivity, if you're going to hang on to an idol of of uh, the world, the world's making, of the world's promises. If you're going to elevate that above Christ, you will not come to fullness of joy. You can't. Because there is something that is competing for your heart, for your time, for your devotion in your heart. For them that are willing to set aside those things which compete with Christ, to take up your cross and to follow him, for these there is confidence, knowledge, and fullness of joy. So if you want to prepare yourself to learn and to grow, if we are going to collectively as a church prepare ourselves for this series, this is what we should do. Root out idols. Search our hearts. Find the idol, every idol. Tear down those high places. Pave the way for Christ to work himself in us through his spirit. And if we will do so, 
then we can expect that John's intent in this epistle will work itself out in us. These things are written that ye sin not. These things are written that ye might have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. These things are written that your joy may be full. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.